0: Two and a half admins, episode 34. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got another blog post to plug, Alan. Yes, pretty much always. (laughs) Uh, So
1: Mitchell wrote a great one on how to customize ports and packages for FreeBSD. So if you want to build the applications that you can have on FreeBSD, there's over 30,000 of them, uh, and most of them support some level of customization. Uh, and sometimes the defaults aren't what you need. Uh, you know Whether you want to bundle support for different video codecs into it, or like the Nginx web server has something like 90 different modules, and you can either compile in the ones you want as a static, or you can uh, build it all with the dynamic libraries. But every application has a bunch of options to control how it gets built, and it's easy to
2: customize them if you follow our little guide.
0: Right, well, link in the show notes.
2: I also have a plug. All Things Open 2021 Call for Papers has opened up. So if you're interested in giving a presentation, at uh, it will be virtual again this year, but uh, largest open source conference on the East Coast, go to allthingsopen.org. Right, well, a link for that as well.
0: So this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different. We've got such a backlog of emails, I thought we will just do a whole episode of that. So if you want to send in those emails, the best way is show at 2.5admins.com. And thank you everyone who's supporting us on Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you go to 2.5admins.com slash support, you'll see a link there. And for $5 a month or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. And if you're a patron, you can send us a message there and you'll jump the queue. So keep that in mind. Okay, Mark got in touch with us and he mentioned the Unix Haters Handbook with regards to Unix history. Is this something that you two are aware of?
2: Yeah, um, I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, it's available for free. It's uh, it, MIT makes it available. It's at uh, web.mit.edu, and uh, basically, it's just you know, kind of an old school like hacker community war story sort of a thing. Uh, it's loaded with uh, hilariously amateur illustrations and just kind of ranting about Unix from old school nerds. It's it's worth a look.
1: Yeah, it might be interesting to see something more modern uh, like that as well, just, you know, in that same vein, but
0: about our current day struggles. (laughs) Okay, a different Mark, I think, got in touch to say, going back to the whole IP tables versus firewall D thing, where would firehole fit into the argument? Since depending on the distro, you may be on IP tables or firewall D, maybe it's best to just learn firehole and be done with it.
1: I think that goes to Jim's original point, which is that if you do that, then it turns out you don't know either of them. You only know Firehole.
2: Yeah, which, I mean, if, if you want to put all your eggs in that basket, that's fine. Um, it's a lovely, you know, firewall syntax. And I really like those folks' whole project. And it, you know, ties in well with uh, Fire QoS. But it's not really my style. I'm still sticking to IP tables. And eventually, I'll have to learn NF tables. And then I'll do that. In
1: general, anything that tries to abstract away the differences between a bunch of firewalls, you're either going to end up not being able to be as specific as you could with the one particular firewall or just not having the same ability to debug a problem. So that's why I've, like Jim, have always preferred to just deal with the, the real raw rules. But if you're in a mixed environment, there's sometimes value in being able to write the rules once and deploy it everywhere. As long as you understand the trade-off you're making, it's like, i might have to learn both. And then using Firehole when you know how to deal with either of the syntaxes individually as well is more tractable probably. But in the end, if it's your job to run the firewall, you should know how the firewall works and not depend on
2: some tool to do it for you. My cryptic comment here that sums the whole thing up is xkcd927. Look it up.
0: So Magnus wrote, On a
2: few occasions you've
0: talked about having a remote pull of the data for a backup so that an intruder on your server cannot access it. When I tried this on my own, on two Raspberry Pis, I immediately ran into a problem. To be able to backup my server from a remote, the remote backup service needs read access to all my files over SSH, which doesn't sound safe at all. What is the correct solution? Do your remote backup users have read access to everything through groups, or is it a root user, or am I missing something?
2: It sounds like Magnus is probably just doing rsync or you know something similar, in which case yes, your whatever user your rsync process is coming in on is going to need read access to everything. Or if you're doing ZFS, you know you can delegate down to a somewhat less privileged user, but effectively you're basically giving you know the remote side root on the production system but that's still less awful than giving production you know the same level of access or or more actually on your backup because again your backup system ideally should not really have anything going on on it it's much more secure than your production and what you don't want to have happen is have somebody you know compromise your production and immediately be able to reach out to your backups and hose all those that's how you find out whether or not you want to pay the ransomware people yeah and like you said with ZFS
1: with the delegation you can have a user that can only do send and nothing else. Uh, And so they can still read all the data technically, but they can't uh, modify any data. Uh, And that's where it really becomes useful in that state. A thing I've done before, I don't know that I recommend it, but when you're using rsync, when you're going to the other side... There's a flag for rsync called uh, dash dash rsync dash path which tells it where on the other side rsync actually lives on the file system in case it's not in the path or whatever or if you want to use a different version of rsync. Uh, but you can use some coding magic and make the path to rsync be sudo rsync. And then you basically SSH is the regular user and then rsync uh, escalates to root to be able to read everything to back it up.
2: Boo! Yes,
1: it's very terrible. If, if you're
2: tr- if you're trying to get fancy with rsync like that, the the best answer in my opinion is not to just use bare rsync over SSH, but run an rsync daemon mm-hmm. on your production side. Uh, you will then want you know, some kind of VPN solution to access that daemon. I don't recommend exposing that you know, over a public network. But once you do that, there's all kinds of nifty things you can do in the rsync daemon. You can expose only exactly the things that you want to back up on the other side so that the actual rsync command literally just becomes you know, rsync everything over there to over here. Yep. And your rsync daemon will exclude things that you, know, you would not want to copy, like you know, proc, sys, you know all that kind of stuff.
1: Or even just, uh, files that match a certain mask or something. The rsync daemon was originally built, uh, to be able to do basically FTP mirrors for Linux distros and things like that. And so it's very well suited to, Hey, I need to grab everything that's changed from the other side once an hour or once a day and pull down using as little bandwidth as possible, but get making sure I have an exact same files as the other side on a regular basis. So yeah, that's a, a nice solution
0: too. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash two and a half to get started with $100 free credit and 60 days to use it. Linode offers cloud computing solutions in data centers all over the world. Whether it's scalable VMs with a choice of major distros or one-click apps and stacks, dedicated CPU and high RAM instances, block and object storage or cloud firewalls and DDoS protection, Linode has everything you need for your personal projects right up to managed enterprise infrastructure. I recently moved my website over to Linode and it was really straightforward. And when I needed a mumble server for our late night Linux community meetups, spinning up a new VM for that was an absolute breeze. Everything's been running flawlessly since I set it up and I love the peace of mind I get from the automatic backups. So go to linode.com slash two and a half, get your $100 credit and check out Linode's great cloud hosting services and first class always available support. That's linode.com slash two and a half. Okay, Tony says, what would be the best way to learn ZFS? I think we've had that question before. Uh, He says, also, when Jim talks about ZFS, does he use it on FreeBSD, Linux, or FreeNAS?
2: Well, so when I talk about ZFS, I use it uh, primarily on Ubuntu Linux, but really the answer to that question is yes. I use ZFS on pretty much everything. Uh, I use it on Linux, primarily Ubuntu, although I have had the displeasure of trying to deal with it on CentOS before. Um, I originally began using ZFS on FreeBSD, and I have used it on FreeNAS and TrueNAS. Although, as always, I generally prefer Zimnas when it comes to a uh, turnkey NAS distro. Zimnas is also based on FreeBSD, but it's closer to the original FreeNAS in uh, in style, form, and function than you know the more modern FreeNAS and TrueNAS are. It doesn't look as shiny. But um, it's quick, it's reliable, and they don't tend to go all bleeding edge and, you know, like bring beta code <laughs> into their ZFS libraries the way the folks at IX systems do.
1: Yeah, uh, for me, mostly on FreeBSD, but I've now started using ZFS on Linux a bunch, especially around development, because I have to make the code work on Linux too in order to upstream it. Yes, <laughs> one of us. Because of where my experience comes from, my use of ZFS on Linux is mostly on CentOS. But it's it's always like bleeding edge version of ZFS on CentOS, not some old version that's available from a, some CentOS package or something. <laughs> it's always the development version because that's pretty much the only ZFS I work on in Linux is just enough to test it. Does this work on Linux too? So for learning, um the best way I think is to play with it setting up some VMs with a bunch of disks and just play with it. Uh, you can even do it on a, a regular, like if you have a Ubuntu machine, you can create a pool out of files as uh, it, a way to be able to play with it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in the FreeBSD handbook, we have a bunch of uh, little experiments that we show you how to do, like showing it actually recovering from a failed drive using those files by being able to just you know use DD and, and wipe out one of those files or delete it so it's unaccessible and it simulates uh, a corrupt or missing hard drive and it really lets you play with all that stuff. I've even used it before to get the exact size that a pool would have come out as. So, you know, figure out, all right, this is the size the drive's actually going to show up to the OS as. Make 144 of those drives, and then write out the Zpool pool command to actually, you know, make the 12 times 12 wide-range Z3s or whatever, and find out how many, you know, usable terabytes I'm actually going to have in the end.
2: Yeah, I'll second that. I do that all the time as well. There are some ZFS, uh, you know, Z pool size calculators out there, but I don't trust them. And it's just so easy just to hit your temp directory and be like, you know, truncate dash S size, you know, zero dot raw and, uh, you know, do the same for one dot raw, two dot raw, whatever, until you've gotten everything together enough to create your pool with exactly the structure you want. And, uh, you know, see how that command worked and what size you get. It's good stuff. It's a good way to practice failures, too. But anyway, before you actually start
0: practicing, you need to have some sort of resource. So, Jim, you've written some articles about this. And Alan, you've written a book, right? Two books. Okay, yeah. You. So you can get both of my books, uh
1: ZFS and Advanced ZFS from ZFSbook.com. They say FreeBSD on the cover, but the ZFS commands are pretty much the same outside of a couple of things where we talk about, you know, how the partitions are or what the device names are gonna be pretty much all of it applies to ZFS on Linux as well.
2: The kernel tunables are going to look a little different. Yes, they end up as files with, you know, slashes
1: instead of dots in the name, but pretty much yeah. uh, they're not much different. When I get enough time to write, you know, the second edition of those it will cover both more neatly.
2: Yeah, as far as my stuff um, especially if you want to get a handle on, you know, just kind of how the the pool structure is, you know, how it all fits together and what it performs like, I've got a series of articles on Ars Technica. That uh, you know goes all the way into basically all the ways you could configure eight disks, you know, in a, a relatively small rack mount server with actual real world performance numbers on them. So a lot of folks I think find that really handy. And uh, if you've got something, you know, if you're a more interactive learner and uh, just reading the book or the article isn't going to cut it for you, you can always hop over to uh, rzfs on Reddit, which I moderate.
1: Yeah, and uh, like I mentioned before, in the FreeBSD handbook in the zfs chapter, there are a bunch of practical exercises you can try to the, you know. Practice doing things like replacing a failed disk or simulating corruption and actually doing a scrub and seeing it repair the data and so on.
2: And if you're going to have hot spares, I highly recommend practicing hot spare usage on, uh, you know, sparse files or what have you to figure out when what actually will or will not trigger a hot spare coming into play to begin with, and then what to actually do with it once it does, because it's not as intuitive as people think. And in particular, I discovered recently answering somebody's question on RZFS ZFS that uh, on Ubuntu, the ZFS auto-replace property is not on by default. So if you don't turn it on yourself, adding hot spares to your pool does nothing.
0: <laughs> Sean says, with work from home and remote school, I have more simultaneous activity on my home network than ever. I have a cable connection with a 500 50 plan, but some activities can still interfere with each other. I'd like to implement quality of service on outgoing traffic, but there's a problem. It seems that effective QoS requires artificially limiting upload bandwidth to slightly less than the WAN bandwidth at the router. Without this, poorly implemented downstream networking equipment, such as my cable modem, will fill up large buffers which cause latency issues known as buffer bloat. The problem with setting up such a limiter is that my cable connection is not stable. I often see greater than 45 megabits per second on upload, but sometimes it dips as low as 30. If I set a limiter to account for this, I'd have to go to around 25 megabits per second, halving my typical upload bandwidth. Is there a way to create effective QoS without setting a limiter lower than my worst upload speed? Or should I just suck it up, pick a limit that will work most of the time? Like 40 megabits per second and move on with my life. I'd love to preserve all of that juicy upload bandwidth, but maybe effective QoS is more important. I use PFSense and I'm willing to do some work to get an ideal solution. So there's really two different parts to the QoS there's
1: the rate limiting and then there's the queuing. Uh, So the biggest thing you probably want to do is set it to have relatively small buffers and then use the queuing to decide which packets get to fill up the pipe first and ideally you would set that to things that aren't going to completely fill up the pipe uh, so you make all the more interactive stuff uh, that is like not watching a video but stuff you're actually trying to do and you need the low latency on get to all its packets always get to the front of the line of stuff that's trying to leave your your network. Uh, and then you just, you know, do best effort on, on the rest of the stuff.
2: The problem is that Sean said he's a PFSense user. Are you familiar with QoS on PFSense, Alan? It's not great. Um, really the only, I mean, you're talking about, uh, you know, using queues to fill up, uh, you know, the most important packets first and yada, yada, yada. And those are absolutely... Key QoS concepts, but in PFSense, you basically have to have separate services on separate VLANs and, you know, assign the VLANs to queues that way to get prioritization. You can get some relatively decent overall anti-buffer bloat QoS on PFSense, but it takes some tweaking and some figuring out which algorithms work best for you, and it's still not really great. Like, it's nowhere near as good as the uh, Fire QoS that I have on my own system's or the, uh, the automatic anti-buffer bloat you would get with something like, you know, Vios that, that uses proper cake. With all that said, you know, most likely what Sean really wants to do is just go ahead and set the rate limiter for 45 megabits, do some testing because there are multiple algorithms on PFSense. It's not obvious which one is going to work best, and I don't remember off the top of my head, so you kind of need to test it. But um, if you've rate limited to 45 megabits, even when your connection you know, maybe goes down to like 25 because it's very busy in your neighborhood, you're still going to be way better off than you would have been if you had no rate limiting at all. It's not ideal rate limiting, but um, it's definitely a lot better than nothing. Yeah, because basically you're going to have the the
1: PFSense box holding back the excess traffic and not filling up those buffers on your modem, except for when uh, you're in the, the shortage situation. Uh, and that will keep that interactivity and the low latency a lot better.
2: And even when you are in the kind of starved upload bandwidth situation, you're still not going to overfill the buffers on your cable modem as badly as you would have if you were just, you know, exactly balls out.
1: Yeah, most of my experience uh, is with using DummyNet uh, with IPFW, which is not the firewall that PFSense uses. I wrote an article in the FreeBSD Journal about two or three years ago on, on doing uh, interesting stuff with queuing on that if, uh,
0: if people are interested. Okay, this episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. I've just started my learning journey with CBT Nuggets, but I've already picked up tons of knowledge from the short and manageable videos in the Docker and Network Fundamentals courses. Their in-house trainers are active and certified IT professionals who add around 40 hours of new training to the course catalogue each week, so you can always stay current and up to date. So start your free 7-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Joshua says, I have a question around remote management and access to multiple clients for monitoring and maintenance for family and friends. I have multiple laptops, desktops, and NAS systems running across multiple locations. How should I be managing my remote access to these? Is there a tool to manage SSH keys, then access the machine through a WireGuard instance at each location?
2: You don't really need a tool to manage SSH keys for that. The just complete no effort, and I have all the money in the world, you know, answer to this is to use TeamViewer. But uh, screw those guys. They keep getting more expensive and more of a pain in the butt, and we hates them. So... Uh, my answer for this is you set up a wire guard monitoring and maintenance network. And the key part to that is you stand up a $5 a month VM at your provider of choice. And you don't need to punch any holes in any firewalls. What you do at the machines that you want to manage is you set up a wire guard tunnel for each of those machines that goes outbound to your WireGuard VM in the cloud. And, um, Optionally, to make things really easy, if you've got a lot of them, you also set yourself up a bind server on that WireGuard VM in the cloud and you make your own private DNS zone. You can call it uh, you know, dot wg, for instance, for you know dot wireguard. And then you just set up a human-friendly name. So if I wanted to manage Alan's laptop and Joe's laptop and my mom's desktop machine, you know, I might have joe laptop.wg and Alan Laptop.wg. And my bind server would resolve those to the proper WireGuard addresses. And as far as the keys, um, you know, you can just use your same pub key, you know, to access all those machines. If you've got an account on those machines, then uh, you just do ssh-copy-id, username at remote box, and it will automatically copy your pub key over to put you in the authorized key list for the user that you're logging into.
1: Yeah, the other thing you can look at is uh if you do need to manage a large number of SSH keys is actually looking at using SSH certificates. So you can just uh, make a certificate authority, trust it on all the machines, and it will basically allow you to use any of the keys signed by that certificate authority. So if you need to manage a large number of SSH keys or if, like something for a whole organization, which is probably bigger than what you want for this setup, but if you do need to deal with a lot of SSH keys, uh, that's interesting. Uh, if you wanted just more tips on stuff to do with SSH keys and, and what you can do with SSH, uh, Michael W. Lucas's book, SSH Mastery, has all kinds of tips for this kind of stuff. But like Jim was saying, your best bet is just set up a wire guard management network that can access all this stuff. Uh, and yeah, you can do it all with just, you know, your authorized keys file can contain a bunch of different keys that are allowed in. And so you can have just one key that's for you and works everywhere. You don't need to have a separate key for everything.
2: Also, WireGuard does work really well for this, but, uh, you know, if you're feeling frisky, there are alternate options that you might pick. Uh, One really interesting one is Nebula. Um, If you set up Nebula rather than WireGuard, uh, Nebula is a peer-to-peer mesh VPN. So you do still need a, uh, ideally, a machine in the cloud. Like, you could just punch a hole in your firewall and use your own machine at home as a lighthouse, but don't do that. You know, set up a cloud VM, Uh, That becomes what Nebula calls a lighthouse, which any of the machines can reach. But what's different here is if you've got a Nebula mesh VPN, you know, amongst, again, we'll just say myself, Joe, Alan, and my mom – When I establish that connection to Joe's house or to Alan's house, although we might introduce ourselves to each other via the lighthouse, um, it uses some interesting UDP tricks to make it so that the actual connection is directly from my house to Alan's. It doesn't go from me to the lighthouse to Alan the way that it would with WireGuard. That helps a lot. Yeah, it's really neat. You can get uh, greatly improved latency and throughput that way. And the really neat thing about it is if you use Nebula for everything, like you might actually want to set up all the machines in your house on this Nebula network and literally only ever use the Nebula IPs to refer to them, even on the LAN. Because when both of your machines are on the LAN, they'll talk to each other directly on the LAN. Now you leave the house with your laptop and you go out elsewhere on the internet and you've still got Nebula running and everything still works just the same as it always did with the same IPs that it always did. You're just, you know, limited to internet bandwidth now.
0: That is really handy. Yeah, it's, it's sweet. <laughs> okay, Jordan says, my wife's company keeps all of their files in a Google Drive that every employee has access to from their laptops. Boo! <laughs> This includes files they need for all projects they have ever worked on. They don't have any backups because they assume that Google will take care of everything for them. Concerned, I asked them what their recovery plan for ransomware is. The company manager said that he has never heard of ransomware affecting Google Drive users. Boo! (laughs) Is it necessary to have backups even when your files are already in a cloud storage like Google Drive? If so, what situations does this company need to be prepared for?
1: Well, I think number one is that the terms of service from Google says we don't guarantee we back up anything. Even Microsoft Office three sixty five or whatever specifically says, you know, do your backups because we don't guarantee anything at all. You know, we'll do
2: our best because it's our reputation on the line, but we guarantee nothing. Plus, there's you know, there's usually not archive depth on those services. Some of them, like, they have the,
1: the previous versions of the documents, but not, yeah. you know. Uh, and then I've heard of people doing terrible things in Office, like using the um, discovery mode, which is basically uh, a way to say, because of a legal case, we need to make sure we never delete anything. Yep. And so there's a way to, to, to set Office up so that it'll keep stuff even that you delete or whatever. But that's not a backup either. And Don't depend on that. There's a lot of articles telling you, no, that's not the answer you need a real backup solution. It can depend a bit how you're using Google Drive or like they're actually doing the thing where they can mount it as a file
2: system because then it's a little easier to back up, but it also means it's way easier for the ransomware to hit it. Exactly. <laughs> which is usually the case. Usually when people are using Google Drive, you know, it just shows up as a folder on their laptop, mm. which means any one of those employees gets ransomware and it finds that folder and it encrypts all the crap and it syncs it all right on back up to the cloud and now it's encrypted everywhere. And... I've actually seen that happen before and I've seen people at a small business scrambling trying to find hopefully one employee whose laptop was not turned on and get to them before they can connect it to the internet. Make sure that it's not internet connected, turn it on and pray that there's an unencrypted, you know, older version of that file. In the local, you know, cash on that machine, which you, you don't want to get in that situation.
1: Yeah, If you're depending on that, you're you're already well lost.
2: You know, also, even beyond ransomware, I mean, uh, you know, on a long enough timeline, every company has a malicious employee. You know, you have the one person that just gets pissed off and they quit and they say, I'm going to delete everything on my way out the door. Uh, you need to be protected against that. And if every single employee has access to every single file on Google Drive, you're the exact opposite of protected from that.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't even have to be malicious. I've seen it where an entire Office 365 SharePoint got deleted because it was tied to a group that got removed because it didn't need to exist anymore. And it suddenly, you know, four gigs of all the business plans and so on just disappeared. Luckily, there was a way to undelete it if if you catch it within uh, seven days or something. But aside
2: from that, even not maliciously, entire clouds can get deleted. Sufficiently advanced incompetence is indistinguishable from malice.
0: <laughs> but what about for Google Docs? Um, you know, if, if it's just files that are in Drive, that's one thing. But Google Docs aren't actually really a file like our show doc here is just a, an entry in a database in some google data center and yes you can then convert that to a docx or whatever and download it but how does that work I've, I've never used drive or docs not just in a web browser so how do you ensure that that's backed up properly with all the versioning and everything
1: i don't actually know the answer for uh, the google docs stuff like i suppose technically i wouldn't mind having a proper backup of all of the show notes uh, for BSD now, because there are now 400 episodes worth in there. Uh, although most of it's been replicated into the website anyway, but I can download a whole directory and get a zip file. So it looks like it's yep. relatively simple to take a you know a monkey backup, but a proper one would uh, be a bit more complicated. But I think Google Drive and Google Docs are tied enough together that I think the Google
0: Docs actually show up as files when you do the Drive thing, right?
2: Yeah, they do.
0: Right. But there's no official client for Linux, right? No, there's no official one. Yeah, And I'm
1: not sure, to answer yeah. Joe's other question, how you access the previous versions, because that might be
0: something you actually care about backing up. Yeah, it's a handy feature of uh, Google Docs, definitely. But I just don't see if I download the Docx, certainly open it in LibreOffice. I don't think I have any version history there, you know, change history and everything. No.
1: I like, imagine with the Google API or something, there's a way to get the list of versions and access a Docx of each one. But that's not the same thing either mmm well maybe somebody out there who listens to our show uh, works with an organization that uses Google stuff like a university or something and can tell us how they do the backups yeah
2: there is a uh, there's a project on github called drive you can actually uh, if you're an Ubuntu user you can add a, a PPA um, for drive and just apt install drive and once you have done that um, it's a fairly easy configuration you add uh, add your uh, OAuth code from Google. And once that's done, you can uh, you can just use uh, the the syntaxes like drive, pull, export, and, you know, get all your crap.
0: Right. I'll have to look into that then, because I really ought to back up all the uh, show notes. I mean, it's the old ones. It doesn't really matter, but I prefer to have them just in case. Yeah, there's a couple of text files. Like, you don't want
1: all the... Flack files of to us talking, you already have those and backed up differently. But yeah, uh the show docs and stuff is just yeah. <laughs> for for the couple hundred kilobytes, I'd rather have them than not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: Now this this is very much a uh, a personal project hosted on GitHub. I would I, I just, you know, for the lulls, I want to mention the name of the PPA. You would apt add repository PPA to dope shaggy slash drive. <laughs> wow, that inspires confidence. Hell yeah.
1: Yeah, I'm going to back up my whole business using Shaggy's dope <laughs> smoking <laughs> backup tool.
0: <laughs> <sighs> right. Well, we would better get out of here then. Remember show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send any questions or comments or even your war stories. Send us some funny stuff that's happened to you, like when uh, Jim plugged in that UPS and it caught fire. Stuff like that, maybe. Might read some of them out. You can find me on Twitter at Joel Rissington.
2: I'm at JRSSnet.
0: And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.